Hey friends, this is part two on the resurrection. On the last show, we talked about the biblical material as it relates to the way Paul talked about the resurrection and the resurrected body and its nature. We talked a little bit about different traditions uh, related to Jesus and what his appearances indicated. Today, I'm going to go through some uh, material and really reflect on stuff I wrote in the past and stuff I studied in the past and people I met in the past uh, in the world of Christian apologetics. And I'm not trying to do this to be hostile. I'm just answering a question. And that question is, what do I think about that now? And uh, does it still hold up? This reevaluation is really rather new for me. I didn't even want to think about it. I just wanted to say, I love Jesus. The church is annoying me, um, is unhelpful and unhealthy for me. So I'm going to ghost church, but we still love Jesus. Uh, these arguments that I'm going to look at are the arguments that I grew up with in evangelicalism. And uh, you may be familiar with them if you did as well. And uh, I'm just going to reflect on them. Thanks for being with us for part two. Here we go. All right, welcome back, friends, uh, to our discussion of the resurrection and my uh, my views of it now, and kind of what I'm thinking about um, the biblical narrative, and uh, now for the second part what I think about the apologetic arguments for the resurrection, something that was really important to me over the years uh, for a variety of reasons. One, because of the uh, intellectual heritage that I had uh, grown up with, with my professor Rod Rosenblatt, who was a student of a guy named John Warwick Montgomery. Now, to put this in context, basically uh, the Christian uh, story, the Christian church has really relied upon uh, these intellectual defenders that allowed uh, people to accept Christianity using the tools of the reigning philosophies of the times. So to kind of give you just a, a backstory to this, if you look to the early church, people in the Hellenistic world, the first century, second century world uh, around the Mediterranean, they were sometimes put off by the idea of the resurrection of the body. That just seemed odd. Um, the idea that, that there was this religion that taught that we were all going to be zombies uh, was kind of gross to some people. Like, grandma resurrecting is, is odd and, and scary um, and maybe something we don't want. I, I want to reemphasize something that maybe I didn't emphasize enough last time, and that is um, for theological, spiritual reasons... Uh, Stacy and I have come to think that the emphasis of churches on the afterlife and uh, resurrection uh, often are part of a denial of the mystical uh, immediate realities and values uh, that we can uh, find in the teachings of Jesus. And so, you know, for a long time, I've said to students, if you're if you're worried about death, first assume that that's like the end. Like, don't think about the afterlife for a second. Come to terms with that, find peace with that, and then you can have this wonderful extra icing on the cake 
um, that this infinity that you can connect with through uh, an understanding of Jesus' teachings and um, mysticism um, might also have this uh, profoundly conscious continuance. That's a fun idea. Uh, but to emphasize that as a way to not really address injustices in this world is a problem. Okay. But back to the, the, the question of the historical arguments for the resurrection. You get, all right, before all this, you get thinkers like Clement of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, later uh, St. Augustine, who are going to come and say, wait, if I bring uh, Neoplatonism into the mix, then you can see how Christianity is a, is a compelling philosophy. And so, um, eventually, in early Christianity, uh, Neoplatonism and Christianity are kind of seen as the same thing. Until the high Middle Ages, when you have the Crusades, and people start coming back with Arabic translations of Aristotle, and they hadn't really run into Aristotle, and Aristotle disagrees with Platonism uh, in key points. And so, there was a crisis. And uh, the crisis was resolved by the synthesis of Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas uses Aristotelian thinking to prove that Christianity is true. And so with that, you get the five ways, the five arguments for the existence of God based on things like everything's in motion. There must have been a prime mover. We call that prime mover God. Everything that has a design must have a designer. The world seems to have a design. Therefore, um, there is a designer probably God. So he uses these a posteriori arguments to show that, uh, that God is the cause of the effects that we see in the world and, and God is the author of all this. But he uses, again, uh, Aristotelianism, something that had been a threat to Christianity. And eventually, for Western Christian apologists, especially after the Reformation, Thomas Aquinas becomes the angelic doctor who teaches Catholic apologists how to argue for the rationality of their faith. And this works for a while um, until we come uh, essentially to modernism and specifically uh, analytic philosophy. There are other challenges, but Analytic philosophy um, and the, the logical positivists, uh, the group called the Vienna Circle, basically said you shouldn't believe in something unless it's verifiable or falsifiable. You've got three basic types of statements. You've got analytic statements. They're true by definition. Um, two plus two equals four. All bachelors are unmarried men. These are certainties, but they're logical certainties that may or may not have any relevance to actual concrete contingent reality. Um, but you, you, you see then um, that theology after this movement uh, in the late 19th century and into the early 20th century of analytic philosophy, you see then that uh, Christian theology becomes uh, suspect. It's not something you can really talk about. Uh, because the claims seem to not fit with what the hard sciences are able to produce. Not certainty, but probability. They deal in the realm of language that is what analytic philosophers would call synthetic statements. Synthetic statements are true or false based on um, data, right? So it's inductive, it's probabilistic, but you're assembling you know, your evidence and, um, uh, and you, you come to probable conclusions. But if you can't verify something, at least maybe you could falsify something, 
But if you don't have a religion that's falsifiable, then um, and, and it's based on sentiment or it's based on revelation, um, just something that somebody claims, then that's not something that you can really talk about in the universities. Uh, you, you have to be able to verify or falsify it. Uh, and this really seemed to deal a death blow to historic Orthodox Christianity until I would put John Mark Montgomery as one of the more important people in this story. Um, I think in some ways his personal character being a little bit questionable, according to some accounts, he's not a nice guy. Um, but basically, um, he was uh, trained in law uh, and uh, in analytic philosophy, and he uses analytic philosophy uh, in a u- unique way. The logical positivists tried to throw out a lot of uh, the clutter in the academy, and, and religion being one of them. But Montgomery shows that uh, cr- historic Orthodox Christianity, and he's right about this, makes a, uh, a claim that is historically uh, verified to the extent that, uh, or verifiable to the extent that um, anything historical can be. And so this then takes, again, uh, a, a world's philosophy, a secular philosophy, and uses it to prove Christianity. What's interesting then is, after this, a lot of Christian apologists in his tradition, uh, Montgomery's tradition, um, would then say that the only real way to have faith in Christianity, or to have a justified belief in Christianity is to examine the evidence for the resurrection and, uh, and uh, show, show it to be true using the tools of analytic philosophy. And uh, therefore, analytic philosophy becomes, you know, the go-to. Interestingly, later on, by the way, um, uh, what we call postmodern thought, continental thought, comes into play. And so there are postmodern Christians and the analytic philosophers uh, amongst the Christians would say, well, that's, that's heresy. You can't do that. But all that really is, is, again, another attempt to take contemporary philosophy and apply it to what's going on in, uh, in Christian thought. But sticking with uh, Montgomery, again, Montgomery was a direct teacher of my professor, uh, Rod Rosenblatt, and he taught all these students um, at Concordia Irvine, where I was a student and later a professor. And we were in this tradition that history mattered. That's why we studied history um, and philosophy mattered and that it was our job to study history and philosophy in a way that uh, was more sophisticated than, than the atheists so that we could uh, win, you know, some of them over to uh, the truth. So that was kind of the game. And one thing I still maintain from all of that is that in a certain sense, I believe that fideism is a kind of unbelief. Um, and that there is a f- there is a c- clear reality to this uh, claim that Western Christianity is a historically uh, based religion. It, like the the verification of Jesus' resurrection is part of it, at least for uh, these apologists. And I would say you see it in uh, John Duns Scotus. Uh, you see it uh, in um, in Occam, where they're looking for not the sort of arguments for the existence of God that you see in, in Thomas Aquinas, because what's the point? A lot of people believe in God, but what about Christianity? Uh, Christianity is defended by this Jesus story that is historically connected. And we have resources. We have manuscripts. We have attestations um, from even some non-biblical sources. 
Um, uh, and uh, you also see this, by the way, my whole dissertation at Oxford was to re- re-examine the history of the Calvinistic or Reformed tradition as it related to this question of apologetics and philosophy of religion in a guy named Theodore Beza. Now, Theodore Beza was my main subject. Beza is the, the architect, really, of Reformed thought in Geneva. Even though Calvin was the celebrity and, and, and the, the guy who got everybody fired up, Beza introduces a lot of the, the fine points of thinking about predestination and, and, and all sorts of other theological themes. But whereas Calvin kind of is a, is a kind of fideist, um, he's a kind of, um, basically he's, he's thinking that apologetics don't work. So what I showed in the, my, my book on uh, Beza is that Calvin was basically saying, uh, it is true that the evidential arguments for the resurrection work, but they only work for people with uh, a, re- a redeemed mind, the reprobate mind, the unelect, the, the people who are doomed essentially from all eternity to, to be lost and, and judged in hell. Uh, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness and they will never see the truth. And therefore, um, they, uh, there's, no, there's no use in showing them the arguments. You can do it, but really it's only there to just kind of reassure yourself that you're on the right track. Beza goes another route, I argue, and Beza says, yes, it's true that, um, that the, those who believe are the elect of God and that they do not believe of their own accord or their own power, but God supernaturally changes their hearts and minds so that they will see the obvious truth of the evidential arguments for the resurrection. So I show that Beza starts with the arguments of the resurrection and says, the only way that we'll ever know these to be true is when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the, the evidence and we can see it with a, a properly functioning mind. Um, so he agrees with Calvin, but there's just a slight shift, whereas Calvin starts with belief in the resurrection and then talks about the evidence. Beza starts with the evidence and says that the evidence is a means, a concrete means, an inductive means by which God brings us to faith. So there's a place within Beza uh, for apologetics, as long as we recognize that we do not uh, think our way into heaven. We do not, uh, we do not have the ability to say, well, we're better people than unbelievers because we um, know something that they don't, or we're smarter than them. It's not about that. It's a, a matter of the will. Um, nonetheless, um, many, many, uh, reformed Christians in the 20th century do turn towards fideism. And at the same time, a lot of conservative Lutherans are fideistic and practically a lot of non-denominational Christians are fideistic. It's just, this is what I believe. I can't prove it, but, uh, this is what I believe. I believe that fideism is a kind of unbelief. I believe that people being afraid to ask apologetic questions or questions about apologetics is a sign of uh, fear. And there's a good reason to fear. Because in my experience, if you look into the questions that Montgomery and others uh, you know, want us to ask about the manuscript evidence and the history of the thing, um, you might just find that it's much more... Uh, 
complicated than you once thought. It's not as simplistic. And if you've ever seen a swift and easy kind of apologetic argument for the resurrection, um, it might feel good. But one of the things that you might not realize is that they're not usually answering questions that people are actually asking. Uh, They're answering like what we call straw men, um, or they're uh, arguing against straw men. Um, and or they're arguing against arguments that came up in the 70s, uh, but ignoring arguments that might have emerged in the last 15 years from biblical scholars. Um, so that's that's an important piece to this. But um, but in any case, um, when I say it's unbelief, is that I, I I kind of get the sense that a lot of fundamentalists, uh, like especially the angry fundamentalists, the anti-intellectual fundamentalists that caused me so much trouble over the years, they, I think, don't want to look at scientific evidence um, or manuscript evidence or the history of early Christianity in, in all its breadth because they, they kind of have this sense that they won't be able to uh, prove it. <laughs> that it will turn out that they're on weaker ground than they thought. And therefore these things that give them hope and security will go away. Right. And they want a faith that cannot be undermined. And I still agree with Montgomery and Rosenblatt that, um, if you say you believe in something that, uh, and, and that there is no data, there is no piece of evidence uh, or no weight of evidence that would cause you to change your mind about your beliefs, then you don't really believe it. You just like, this is just your wishes. This is your just assertions, um, un- unfounded fideistic assertions. I just, <clears throat> you know, you can do that if you want, if it makes you feel good, but that, that does, I, I still agree that that doesn't feel like a very comfortable place to be. Now, <clears throat> I've had colleagues that, uh, like an anthropology colleague that was um, more, amenable to mysticism. And I eventually, you know, came to him and said, uh, you know, as I had started exploring mysticism, you know, I think you're right and I'm wrong about one thing. And that is there's a certain kind of certainty that a spiritual seeker might encounter. Uh, I believe this is really only found through mystical encounter. Um, but there's a certain kind of a certainty that is so profound that you will never, you'll never let it go. You have seen something that sometimes you might t- start to fall back asleep or you, you, you lose touch with it. Uh, but there is a kind of certainty that you say, um, uh, this is my reality and I, I, I cannot imagine anything shaking this fundamental uh, hope. And so I actually still live with that. There's like a fundamental hope within the universe, within reality um, that, you know, I can't really share with you because I think that's the nature of the mystical experience. I can only report to you that in my mystical experience, um, I have a certain kind of certainty, uh, but it is definitely not a certainty about the formulations of doctrine, right? And yet uh, I appreciate those well-meaning people that want to go in and really look at the evidence. I do not appreciate uh, folks um, like, uh, like, uh, you know, these kind of like two two bit, uh, apologists, uh, sometimes like the, the hustlers, um, that exaggerate their, uh, their claims, uh, of authority, their education, you know, they call themselves doctor and, and so forth. Um, and then kind of with a sneer, um, 
you know, make it like everything they're saying is obvious and everybody who, who doesn't agree with them is a fool. I, not helpful. Even if you're an Orthodox historic Christian, you still shouldn't find that helpful because in the long run, when somebody probes a little further, the simplistic apologetic, apologetic arguments, when they start to fall apart, cause young people to lose their faith. In other words, if, if Christianity is about inerrancy, um, the rejection of evolution, uh, thinking that women aren't people too, um, and uh, thinking that LGBT people are, uh, are abhorrent, if you kind of have to stick with that, and uh, then when you start to rethink it, the whole thing kind of crumbles because it's not rigid enough, or because it's too rigid, it's therefore too fragile. Um, you know, I think that's all, that's all stuff that's going on. But, but in many ways, like I said, in the 20th century, people wanted to not be afraid of that. They, they wanted to kind of stop the noise of the modernist world, the atheistic agnostic world from kind of making fun of Christians in the intellectual uh, marketplace of ideas in the, in the public square. So you, you have a couple uh, forms of this kind of fideism. Um, you see it in a guy named Karl Barth. Now, Karl Barth is a lot more groovy than I used to think. A cool guy, uh, didn't like Hitler, um, rejects what's called natural theology because he recognizes if all you've got is nature, then, you know, Hitler, Hitler's kind of right uh, in, in the sense that um, evolution creates in us a certain kind of violence and competition. Um, Buddhists and other spiritual uh, seers um, will say that that's something we should overcome. But, uh, but if Christians try to use nature to show what is, you, you come up a, upon some problems, you know, and maybe you didn't realize it originally. Thomas Aquinas says, for instance, um, you know, sex is only for procreation. Um, animals only do it for procreation, but he didn't really understand what bonobo chimps were up to. He couldn't have, he didn't really understand the sexual lives of dolphins, but there are all sorts of animals, um, that, uh, enjoy sexual gratification that has nothing to do with procreation. Um, so what does that mean? Does that mean that we should be promiscuous? Uh, well, um, I don't think any of us should say that just because we have certain urges, uh, we should always follow those urges. Uh, if, if, uh, if, I think it's probably more healthy to not be so confined as the church has tried to have us be confined and so shameful and uptight about sex, but think about other things. Um, salt, sugar, these are things that our bodies want. Evolution uh, has kind of you know, encouraged us to uh, seek after sweet things and salty things and fatty things for our survival. But now that we have more abundance and packaged foods, these things are problematic. So we need to kind of adjust our minds so that we can eat healthier, be healthier, you know. Back to Karl Barth. Karl Barth rejects this idea that we should get our theology and our ethics from nature. We need it from revelation. There's compelling intellectual aspects to this. Also, Bart is going to say that Christians answer and ask, uh, ask and answer their own questions. There's a narrative there that really can only be understood within the Christian context and cannot be really understood from a secular space. And what Karl Barth does in the movement from his, uh, you know, uh, tradition and his students becomes called neo-orthodoxy. Uh, Bardianism, um, but basically, 
Uh, he doesn't. He's not into apologetics because basically he kind of sets sets out these two realms. There's a realm in which you can do your biblical scholarship and you can be a uh, a critic of the Bible in a in a scientific scholarly way, but then there's this other thing. There's this cosmic propo- uh, uh, proposal uh, proclamation of the early church, an orthodoxy that we should still use. So Bart wants us to speak like Christians again. Uh, and he's doing this in Europe in a world where, um, you know, really people started to redefine what Christianity was. Why? Because governments and uh, donors had created these educational spaces where people were paid to be professors of Christian theology, and yet they didn't really believe it in the original way. And so they kind of had to modify what they were doing. And Bart said, no, let's stop, you know, stop this nonsense. And let's just start talking theologically again, talking like Christians again. Now for Bart, what you have is this, like, imagine there's like a, there's a big soccer field and that's the field of academic research and knowledge. What Bart wants to say is, let us just carve out this little corner of the field and that's where we're going to have our little sandbox and it's going to be theology. It preserves the opportunity for Christians to speak like Christians, which has a a lot of merit on its own, uh, instead of having to force that narrative into the, the myth of the secular, which still is a myth and problematic. That is the idea that as human beings get smarter over time, they also become less transcendent or less supernatural. Um, And that anytime somebody's talking about something that's spiritual, it's a good indication that they're stupid. And um, I think, you know, I've seen this to not necessarily be the case. Uh, Certainly people are as religious as, well, they're as spiritual as they've probably always been, or at least there's still a significant aspect of that in people's lives. It just does not take the same old forms, and people are resistant, and I think rightly so, to institutionalized religion. Uh, Stacy and I think that you might uh, need to ghost church, and that this is not something to mock. A lot of times I remember, you know, Christians mocking people who said they were spiritual but not religious, uh, mocking people that thought they could go encounter God on a hike on Sunday instead of going to church. And, uh, you know, maybe I laughed along, um, not too heartily, uh, but, uh, but in any case, uh, these days we, we're pretty clear that, um, there's nowhere in, in the Bible that says you have to be a member of a denomination and show up on a certain membership role, uh, to avoid hell. I just like, that's a construct that, um, is unnecessary and kind of silly in our view. Uh, but in any case, um, to to kind of have a language of, of faith um, that narrates the world, narrates evil, is really helpful and important. And as my late son, Augie, always said, um, one of the problems of modernism is that, um, whether it's in a political form or a scientific form, that taking away spirituality from people is a, is a unhelpful move because we need to integrate our knowledge and we need to narrate our knowledge. It doesn't mean that we have to have a narration that includes the Greek gods or the Hebrew deity or whatever. Um, it doesn't even need to require the supernatural, but it does need to have some kind of profound meaning. And, you know, there were anarchists that saw this as well. A lot of late 19th century, early 20th century 
anarchists uh, were, you know, adamantly atheistic and materialistic, like uh, Mikhail Bakunin. Um, but uh, eventually there were some that said, if you don't have a kind of a spiritual motivation or narrative, then it's anemic and it, and it can't really carry uh, the weight it needs to carry. And that's why Stacy and I are very interested in, in this idea that we're at least calling for now spiritual anarchy, uh, sometimes Jesus anarchy. I suppose last show and this show will help you realize why we're more reluctant to call it Christian anarchy, because in many ways, Christian anarchy relates to Christendom, which isn't the mission of Jesus so much as what I talked about on last show's uh, podcast episode, that from Constantine to, to Charlemagne and then to the religious right, which I didn't mention then, but I should include that now, uh, you have this... Um, this uh, co-opting of the message of Jesus for Western and specifically European dominance of the world, and Jesus becomes a mascot in that. And that's, uh, that Christendom is not something I necessarily, in fact, I don't want to endorse or uh, identify with. You know, um, as far as this idea of the myth of the secular goes, I think I've been kind of delighted to see... Um, People would call themselves scientific, uh, you know, naturalists who can also speak about a kind of mysticism, a mysticism in nature. I mean, certainly uh, uh, early Buddhists, uh, early philosophical Taoists and modern scientists uh, and to many, and to many um, forms of Hinduism in Vedanta, a kind of uh, world in which they can all operate and appreciate similar themes and not have to rely on uh, some kind of uh, supernatural revelation. There, there is a mysticism, there is a spirituality that emerges even as we are shedding old forms of religion, and a lot of young people are interested in stuff that we call New Age, and some of it we uh, in the Mountain family have found kind of helpful and fun. We'll talk about on sometime, uh, sometime in the future, um, you know, like the ways in which things like... Um, Interestingly, something that uh, uh, John Warwick Montgomery thought was interesting and, uh, and licit, the uh, use of tarot cards along union psychological lines, using tarot cards more like a Rorschach test or as a way of narrating our own mythical journey as human beings rather than as, uh, you know, fortune telling, that sort of thing, and like knowing your destiny. But, but like those new agey kind of things, things that we were told not to do, uh, things like yoga, uh, meditation, stuff not to practice, that stuff's still rocking. And I'm glad it's rocking. So in this weird way, I, you know, I grew up in a world where everybody, or at least I came from a world in which everybody uh, that uh, grew up in America was supposed to have some you know, kind of connection to a religious um, identity and that the atheists were and these outliers. Uh, you know, those distinctions are increasingly going away. But in any case, for Bart, he rightly was critical of a kind of uh, black and white, and I mean this like in the TV kind of metaphor, uh, a, a disenchanted modern universe and one that the Christian church wasn't uh, to adapt to, but to prophesy within or against even. And specifically, Bart was right about one thing, and that is Hitler comes to power through a kind of liberalism. Um, we mean religious liberalism, 
And that is the kind of liberalism that says, I'm going to look at what the culture says, and I'm going to tailor the Christian message to uh, appeal to and to be compatible with the mainstream culture. And that's a betrayal. No, it, the message of Jesus definitely is countercultural. And if it's not countercultural, uh, then that's not helpful. And when it's not countercultural, it doesn't have a real strong ability to uh, stop the Nazification of the church. Now, the Nazis is a side issue. The Nazis really uh, proactively went in and, and, and disemboweled the church and put their own people and all that. But uh, there is an element to which, um, you know, even in our progressive churches in America today, they may all be um, saying the right things, the right things that corporations want to say about uh, gender politics, uh, about race and so forth. Uh, even as they themselves are not really making significant changes in how they view workers or, or refugees or something, you know, they might be compassionate in some ways, but ultimately uh, Christianity can't just be a social club and have any real value. If Christianity is going to have any value within a culture, it has to be radical and it rarely is. Uh, but when it is, it's powerful. Uh, in any case, uh, this idea that we're moving into a, a purely uh, materialistic world, that was something people thought maybe in the 70s, but it, it doesn't seem to be the case. Um, but BART doesn't do enough because what uh, I agree with uh, the group known as the Radical Orthodox, that everything's theological, that you know, you're either an atheologian or a theologian. You, you've got to approach the world in some way that kind of comes to terms with a bigger question of what this all means, where it's coming from, and, and, and how we understand, you know, the very fundamental reality in which we find ourselves. And therefore, Bart carves out a space in European theology, but doesn't really do much to, to influence the overall thinking of the world. But he got some good things. Now, there's a guy who's a little more anti-intellectual than Bart, and that is this guy Cornelius Van Til, though he was smart and researched and stuff like this. Cornelius Van Til influences Dutch neo-Calvinism in America, and the tradition there is known as presuppositionalism. Drawing from Calvin, but also from Hegel, um, basically it's this idea that there is the reprobate mind, like we saw in Calvin, they cannot understand things, they do not have proper noetic function, to use the language of a related philosophical tradition known as the Reformed epistemologists, which isn't worth getting into now. But Van Til basically says, you, you know, you're not going to win in modern Western conversations by going to the evidence. So you either just presuppose it or not. A really great example of how this works in practice is the um, engagement between the, uh, the disgusting, <laughs> um, creepy, and uh, uh, occasionally... Um, uh, sl American slavery defending uh, Doug Wilson um, of uh, the Christian homeschool movement and uh, New St. Andrews in Moscow, Idaho, that, that guy. Uh, Doug Wilson, though, is an interesting uh, conversation uh, he has on a documentary. I forget the name. Check out protectionoggin.org so I can give you the link. Um, but it's between him and uh, Christopher Hitchens. And the way they're able to get along is that Doug Wilson hears all the arguments for, from Christopher Hitchens and says, but we just fundamentally see the world from different perspectives. 
And he's right about one thing, Wilson is. If you assume that the God of Thomas Aquinas is a given, if you believe that this is true, and if you have some uh, way in which your mind has been liberated to see this reality, then uh, nothing you will see in the evidentiary world will, will shake that. Um, I guess I will mention uh, a reformed epistemologist, uh, a very smart guy, one of the best Christian philosophers in terms of just being interesting and uh, relevant, uh, was uh, Alvin Plant, is Alvin Plantinga. Plantinga basically compares this whole thing to uh, playing cards. Imagine that you're dealt a royal flush. It may be very unlikely that you're able to beat all the other people at the table if, you know, if you're just looking at things uh, statistically, except if you know for a fact that you've got the the um, the royal flush, you know without a without a doubt that you'll win. So, uh, no amount of evidence, no amount of bluffing on the side of the other person, no um, evidence that they had received an extra ace and they were looking for aces. None of that is going to make you worry because you already know that you've got the top hand. You got what they call in poker the nuts. So. The, this Reformed tradition says, if we already know, because this is a properly basic belief, a belief that's embedded in us, we immediately realize it, we immediately perceive God's reality. If this is true, then there's no evidential argument that's going to sway us. And all that is so comforting. And not only is it comforting, it's helpful to people uh, who want to engage with other public intellectuals without looking like total fools. Because then they can just explain the coherence of the worldview rather than debating individual pieces of it. And in many ways, the uh, the presuppositionalist uh, apologetic method or approach was just simply to, to kind of tangle people up, to show them the contradictions of their own beliefs. The favorite of Doug Wilson and others, of course, is um, when, when you catch an atheist saying something is right or wrong, you ask, well, where do you get this idea? You can't have a right and wrong uh, without a divine lawgiver. And so it's um, to say that Christians teach something that is wrong or, or their bigotry is wrong implies that they recognize a moral vantage point that can only be a divine God's eye view on ethics. Now, um, as an aside, this is a very problematic apologetic argument, I think, because um, it betrays something very dangerous, something beneath the surface for a lot of Christians. And, and that is this idea that if there is no God, we would just rape and pillage. And I've heard a lot of Christians say that, like, if, if, if God weren't real, I'm, I'm going to go be a bad person. And I just think, well, why would you want to be a bad person? Like, if God's bad, I still don't want to be a bad person. I want to, I want to help. I don't want to hurt people. I want to bring more comfort and love into the world. So why, like, what's, what's going on here where we think that the only reason I'm not going to leave my spouse and abandon my children and, and murder somebody for a pack of cigarettes is, is because God's going to punish me? That's a pretty low-level morality. On the other hand, you got the existentialists, uh, atheist existentialists like Sartre saying, um, when you realize that you are that kind of free agent, then when you're bad, you are inventing who you are. Like the, the idea of existentialism is existence precedes essence. You are, and then you become something and you have some freedom in this. And so the, the decisions you make and the things that you do define whether you're an angel or a demon. 
you know. Um, and I, I think, therefore, the reason I'm mentioning this is I think that idea that the reason we should believe in God is because if we don't have God, we don't have ethics. Uh, I just think that's, uh, that's not true. And uh, at a practical level, I think some of the most ethical people I know are people that have had to kind of go the hard way to a kind of atheism, not so they can do the naughty things they want to do, but so they, they could love people and so that they could be truthful and so that they could um, follow truth itself in, in science and other places. But uh, in evangelicalism, for the most part, again, in the wake of John Warwick Montgomery, uh, you'll see a whole host of people, uh, the Lee Strobels, um, you'll see um, these, uh, like the Lee Strobel's story is coming out as a, a film by the same people who made uh, God's Not Dead. Uh, uh, it's coming out soon. Um, all sorts of, even even as an Orthodox Christian, you've got to see there are all sorts of problems with the argument that that Lee Strobel sets up in his uh, his book on the, you know, ap- apologetics for the resurrection. Uh, but you see all these people that, uh, like Ravi Z- Zacharias was, you know, an example of somebody who inflated and lied really about his credentials to, to show how, of, of course, obviously Christianity is true. You have far more sophistication. And I think in many ways, the best, um, the best manifestation of this tradition of Montgomery is probably not um, like Josh McDowell, um, but rather this guy, William Lane Craig. Now, some people say, hey, William Lane Craig kind of reminds them of a, of a, a game show host, and I, I, I think that's an ad hominem that's unhelpful. Um, I found him to be a, a, a nice guy. He's probably, of the apologists, besides, you know, like people that I've been in their networks, like uh, Rosenblatt, um, William Lane Craig's probably one of the best of the evangelical historic evidential apologists and uh it was kind of out of biola but by the time i ran into him he was arguing from for an old earth and was taking some some risks although he's kind of you know at the end of his career so he's taken some risks though that i think were really helpful uh, for christian intellectuals and so i applaud him i appreciated him um there were some theological things i found odd um just about like the nature of the image of God and so forth in our conversations with uh, Josh Swamidas when we were chatting, but ultimately a person of, of goodwill. Uh, but the, I think the, the thing that I always found kind of um, unhelpful about William Lane Craig uh, wasn't his fault. It was just like the weakness of the system, which is I don't think that Christian apologists have sufficiently spent time in biblical studies, even that like a Christian seminary, they haven't, they've spent a lot of time with, with philosophy and the history of the arguments, but not with the, with the first century materials as much as it seems. They do a lot of derivative work, um, relying on people that are often helpful and refusing to quote people that are uh, hostile because we say, you know, well, those are just, you know, those are unbelievers. So obviously they don't believe in prophecy. Obviously they don't believe the truth. And I think that's something that really kind of threw me off for a long time because there were a lot of things that I just didn't entertain because the well had already been poisoned. You don't read that guy um, because he's obviously uh, an antagonist. And we certainly don't read like 
Elaine Pagels or uh, we don't leave the women that that was not something to really uh, entertain anyway, just because they were, you know, women. So um, but uh, but William Lane Craig, I think when I saw him the first time, I was disappointed because he failed to kind of recognize some of the aspects of uh, the formation of belief that continental philosophers had raised. Also, the first century manuscript stuff. Um, and also seemed to make it kind of easy and simple. Now, if you go to this, and, and I think, let's leave Craig out of it because he's a decent guy. Go to the late and uh, very um, immoral um, Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias wanted to win. But the problem is, if you come to a faith through lies... Then when those lies are exposed, then your whole faith kind of becomes, um, well, it can fall apart. And maybe it should fall apart. But the idea that you're going to like trick somebody in with an easy argument, uh, that only has a short-term value, especially for somebody like myself who is a professor. You see students struggling with their faith because they think that they have to be an errantist. And like I said, when it, when it doesn't work, it, it crumbles. And in any case, I think we're living in a time where the internet gives us enough information about all sorts of fun things and mysterious things and strange things that the old way of just kind of simplistically going about the apologetics uh, is is not viable. It's not going to work. So what is, though, um, the the way that you could do it? Now, I want to give you the best case for it. And I think it comes from uh, a guy that I studied with at Oxford, Richard Swinburne. Swinburne um, met with a group of other scholars and um, grad students to present the, the kind of the material that he would eventually publish as uh, the resurrection of God incarnate. And so he, it's a, it's a short book. You can read it if you want. Um, I, I think it's one of the better approaches and the reason is he takes seriously the argument of uh, essentially David Hume, who says that there is so much background evidence against miracles that no matter what curious evidence you might come across, it can never really be enough to cause you to, to change your mind about it. That is, miracles are at least rare. Uh, it's very common that people will hallucinate or make things up or want something to be true and imagine it to be true. There are all sorts of experiences that we have in this world where we see that, you know, people's reported accounts of angels, ghosts, miracles, and so forth uh, are, are not reliable. And, uh, and on, on the other hand, resurrections are so infrequent, if, if not imp impossible or like, you know, as far as we're concerned, it's such a, a strange thing that you would need extraordinary evidence for it. All right. So we'll entertain that there's evidence for it. But I think for a long time, a, a lot of apologists would say the background evidence doesn't really matter um, because Hume is arguing in a circle. The way it was presented to me was that Hume basically says miracles don't exist because miracles are a violation of nature and nature is filled with laws. And so... Um, Miracles, by definition, can't exist. 
there is some of that, but ultimately Hume is a little, a lot more sophisticated, and he's just he's just talking about historiography and the philosophy of knowledge, and and I think there uh, there is something very strong. I mean, this is even before you get to the the questions of the the materials that we're working with, the manuscripts. But basically, Hume says, the background evidence is so strong that miracles don't happen that what we've got cannot connect us to any certainty that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Swinburne comes along and says that, uh, no, um, it is true that Hume is right. That if, if, you just, if you're just starting with Hume, there's no reason to believe in God. There's no reason to believe that miracles take place. So if somebody has a historical account of a miracle or an encounter with God, you don't need to uh, take that too seriously. But Swinburne says, what if we address first the background evidence? So what Swinburne does is he kind of combines the historical arguments from Beza to John Warwick, Montgomery, etc. He keeps that part in a little bit. And then he also um, starts, though, with folks like Aquinas. Now, why does this matter? And I think he's right about this. If God exists, then it is likely that God will try to reach out to us. And if God were to reach out to us, he would want to do it in the context of a culture that was able to spread ideas broadly. And the first time you really have this is with the Greco-Roman world, all these roads and all these thoroughfares and all of this traffic uh, made it perfect, the fulfillment of like the fullness of the times. When Jesus came on the scene, whatever you think about him, it was a pretty good time to spread a big message and broadly. It was certainly the first time. Now you could do it now with the internet and television, but in those days, uh, you know, Prior to when Jesus comes on the scene, it's unlikely you could get, uh, you know, some dude from Galilee to say something that people would pay attention to on the other end of the uh, known world. So, um, so that's part of it. And the, uh, if you're going to do that, you would also expect that God was going to reveal God's self through some kind of incarnation, some kind of unity with us. And he's kind of going through this by saying, it's not that you would think, Swinburne says, it's not that you would think this up yourself. It's just that when you consider it, kind of like E equals MC squared, when you consider it, it's pretty hard to imagine a better way for a God who loves us to care about us uh, and show that he cares about us. Um, There's no better way to do that than to become one of us and suffer alongside of us and then show that he overcame death. And by overcoming death, he reveals that he does exist. And this is sufficient for the world now uh, to give them the opportunity to follow God or to not. Okay. But what this means is that if the arguments for the existence of God from philosophy put, let's say, the probability that God exists to 75% or 80%. I mean, heck, even 50% in, in his model, which I'll get to in a moment. Uh, but if you have a, a reason to believe that God might exist, that's step one, and you have a reason to believe that something wild happened in the first century related to Jesus, so you put that at 60%, 50, 50 to 75% that Jesus rose from the dead historically, those things together 
uh, kind of create a new formula for uh, confidence. That is, and I, and I agree with this, if there's no reason to believe in God, then the idea that Jesus rose from the dead to vindicate his interpretation of God makes less sense. But if there is reason to believe in God, we could compare Jesus to other teachers, and we'll see that, uh, well, as I said, the Buddha doesn't say much about God. Um, Muhammad says slightly different things about God, uh, the Zoroastrians, different traditions. So uh, we look at Jesus, and by looking at Jesus and his life, and the idea that he doesn't seem to be a liar, you know, going to the, the C.S. Lewis thing, he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic, he's saying things about himself. Uh, because of all this, when you put it all together, it makes it uh, very likely that the resurrection took place. Now, what's different about Swinburne is that he's drawing upon both theistic philosophical arguments and historical arguments, and he's putting them together because they uh, relate to each other from the perspective of probability, probability theory, and in particular, a very specific thing called uh, Bayes' theorem or Bayesian probability. And I don't understand it well enough. I study it for an hour at a time, and then I think I know it, and then I, I can't express it properly. But let me give you my, my dime store version of it. Basically, um, what it boils down to is that when you have these various variables that relate to each other, then they're going to affect the probability uh, you know, of, the, of the overall question, the overall thing in question. Um, Maybe I'm doing this wrong, but let me give you at least the effect of it. It may be that I only have a 10% hunch that somebody is a creeper. And then independently, my wife says, you know, I got a hunch that person's a creeper. And then I hear a story that he did something wrong. And then there was an accusation that comes out in the news. Now, the reliability or the, uh, the, the plausibility of a person's argument might be put at 50-50 in my mind. I might, I might assign uh, a public accusation against a religious leader, I might say that that, uh, like usually, usually I'm going to say, well, yeah, it probably happened, but let's just assume that I'm saying this particular person, I'm, I'm thinking this claim is credible, but only really uh, at a 50%, uh, a 50% probability. But if I have other friends that, let's say, went to this person's church and they said that they had these uncomfortable but unclear experiences, they said, well, maybe he was being creepy, but I'm not sure. You put these together, and even though each individual situation might have a, um, a lower probability, when you, when, you, when you factor everything in through a complicated formula, Bayes' theorem, it's going, to affect, you know, it's going to affect your overall probability. So check that out, and uh, if you love Bayesian probability, then read the very last section, which was too dense for me, um, to, to kind of see what you think of that, you know, what, what you think of his argument. I'm not saying that Swinburne's Bayesianism is the main thing. I'm saying that Swinburne connecting theistic arguments to the arguments of the resurrection is important. That is, if God exists, it makes the resurrection more likely. And if there's reason to believe in the resurrection, there's more reason to believe in God. They're mutually supportive. Fair enough. And I think that's um, interesting and cool. Um, so the way I kind of played this out myself was in the context of um, the Christian paradigm. That is, uh, one of the things I got from my uh, professor, Alistair McGrath, was the importance of abduction. That really when you're trying to make a case for the Christian way of thinking, you've got to do it by saying this makes the best sense of everything. It's the best, 
how can I say it? It's, it's uh, the best possible explanation. It has explanatory value. So as I, as I look at things, they're clarified by this Christianity rather than, than darkened by it. And, um, and so I've written about this uh, in a festrift for um, Alice, uh, I'm sorry, in a festrift for um, uh, Rod Rosenblatt, I wrote a piece called Epistemology of the Cross, where I give a criticism of Alvin Plantinga and the Reformed epistemologists, and basically argue um, for a, a, a way of seeing the world through paradigms. And, and for this, I draw from the um, philosopher of religion, Ian Barber, who is very, very helpful by providing four criteria, or what he calls four trans-paradigmatic criteria. That is, he agrees with the presuppositionalists and, uh, and everybody, like, the, oh, I'm sorry, not everybody, but in, and um, people that we've been discussing, like, um, uh, like uh, Swinburne, who would say that the background evidence that we bring to the table as we look at any you know, assembly of, of data. When we're doing this, uh, we're always doing it with a, a bias, and we have to constantly evaluate that bias. And in, a, in an intellectual world, we call this a paradigm. It's a network of beliefs. So we all operate with paradigms. I like the language of paradigm better than worldview. Usually worldview is something that I hear from, from Christians that are tending to be anti-intellectual presuppositionalists. But in any case, um, you could use that if you want. But, but I like the kind of, this idea of paradigm. So, you know, if you've noticed that Stacy and I have had this dramatic change in the way we've been thinking and talking about stuff, it's not entirely new. You could probably see evidence of it in our earlier stuff. But we had a paradigm shift that has allowed us to kind of rethink a lot of different things, including what we're looking at now, the, the resurrection, starting out by saying, heck, for our own safety and sanity, we got a ghost church. And then all of a sudden realizing, oh, this allows us to have space to actually answer listener questions in a candid way. Not that we were trying to be deceptive in the past. It's just that now I can actually look at it without worrying about what people were going to think about what I say. And I'm just going to tell you what I think. I could be totally wrong, of course. And this is what I think. In any case, uh, so the problem is, though, we've, we're all stuck with these paradigms for a while. We've got to figure out, is, is my paradigm a good paradigm? Should I change my paradigm? And when should I change my paradigm? For this, we need trans-paradigmatic criteria. This is what Ian Barber provides, or what he, what he suggests. And I think you should use it, you should consider using it for life in all sorts of things, like is this person worth dating? <laughs> you know, you got to look at all these different things. And here's, here they are. These are the things that you apply to your paradigm to see whether the paradigm is something that you should continue to hold. First, agreement with data. That is, does what I'm believing is my overall belief system compatible with the evidence that I'm getting in the experiential world? And it's okay if there are anomalies. Obviously, there are going to be all sorts of times when something doesn't make sense to us. But if we're constantly confronted with data that, that we can't integrate into our, our, our view of the world, at some point, we're going to have to consider modifying it or swapping it out for something altogether. If, on the other hand, every time we look at the data, we say, ah, this, this fits with what my paradigm is, then that's generally a better space. It is, of course, true that we tend to have confirmation bias, so you can't just have 
that criterion. So he's got also coherence. Coherence is the idea that your beliefs fit together. Now, this one's the most dangerous, I think, because all of the best science tends to not just not to ignore anomalies, but hones in on them and says, all right, what do we learn from this anomaly? An anomaly being a piece of data um, that doesn't fit what we already think, and so it causes us to examine our system. It is not good science. It is not good philosophy. It's not good biblical studies, for that matter, to try to cram any individual instance of something into a system. Martin Luther didn't think we should do that. Occam certainly didn't think we should do that. It's just not good science, not good philosophy. The problem is, for coherence, that with, with respect to coherence, um, lots of things are coherent and just bonkers, right? So 9-11 conspiracy theories, the QAnon nonsense, uh, just all conspiracy thinking in general is often more coherent than the accounts that we have of actual real events. And yet uh, they're coherent because there's only a select few people kind of putting it together. So the idea that the Bible has slightly different takes on the resurrection isn't in itself a problem. That's what you would expect. It's the nature of those discrepancies that I'll get to maybe in a moment. Well, look, let's, let's get to them now. Um, the coherence of Christianity as a theology is okay. I got that, right? But... Um, the coherence of Christianity in terms of the biblical record, as I've already started to get into on the first part of this uh, examination of the resurrection, is not as strong as we were led to believe. You've got a lot of difference uh, already between Paul, Peter, and James. They get along, but they don't all see things exactly the same way. Um, and then you get to the synoptics. The synoptic gospels are generally the same, but they're not identical. They're slightly different takes on the resurrection. Uh, I think the best evidence uh, is that Mark does not have an elaborate account of the resurrection, but it ends kind of abruptly. Um, and uh, definitely not in the elaborate way that you see in, in some of the other spots, um, like Luke and John. And, um, you know, on top of all that, uh, you know, this whole conversation that Jesus was having with folks was from, you know, and with uneducated people. They were not idiots, but they were uneducated formally. Uh, they were Aramaic speakers. These were the first disciples. And uh, the books that we have about all this were written at least 50 years later. Uh, the books were written in Greek and clearly show that they're written from the perspective of somebody who had a slightly higher echelon, especially when you see shifts to uh, shifts from things like blessed are the poor or uh, blessed are you poor to blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> you know, it seems to be something that's more palatable to a wealthier audience. Even though the first century Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem seemed to have been very clearly poor. When we start to ask questions, if we're looking at uh, coherence, um, did both... Um, of the people on the cross next to Jesus, did they mock him? Or did one of them affirm Jesus and the other mock him? Um, you know, who went to the tomb? Was it Mary Magdalene? Did Mary Magdalene go alone? Did she go with others? And who was at the tomb? Was it one man? Was it two men? Was it an angel? Were the disciples supposed to stay in Jerusalem? Or were they supposed to go to Galilee? These are questions that you'll see or that will arise in your mind as you look to the synoptic gospels and to 
uh, and to John. And then, of course, it further complicates it if you even entertain some of the accounts outside of that, uh, such as the uh, Gospel of Thomas. Now, I suppose I kind of got a little ahead of myself. The, the first part is agreement with data. And, um, and, uh, and now I'm on to the topic of coherence. So the first uh, criterion is agreement with data. And I explained what it was, but I didn't tell you what I thought about the data. Um, I will say that um, if you look to N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright wrote a really fat argument um, about or a book about the, uh, the resurrection. Uh, I think it's the best exhaustive historical case related to the resurrection. And um, I think what's really strong there is related to this idea of data, and that I still agree with, and that is that something happened. People had a profound experience that caused them to um, f face death, uh, caused them to become bold when they had been afraid, had caused them to have confidence and authority when they were uncertain and timid. And so something happened, and it happened to enough people uh, in a profound enough way for folks to treat this as unique, as something unexpected, and as something worth, um, you know, risk, risking a lot for. So I think the data does show that that there was a dude, there was a dude in the first century, definitely a dude in the first century named Jesus. Jesus was crucified. I think it's as it's as certain as you can get that that Jesus existed and it was crucified, and that the, the disciples um, were originally afraid, and then they came to a certain kind of confidence. And if you want to read that in, in, its, the, in its greatest, most forceful way, it's in N.T. Wright's big old book on the resurrection. So I do agree that there is uh, some good data there. But what I want to say about all of these criteria is that um, each of them has like, imagine like a balance of these scales, right? Where there's this weight of evidence on the one hand, and there's the weight of evidence on the other hand. <laughs> And as far as the data goes, there's some really strong stuff there, but there are also a lot of holes, a lot of inconsistencies that I'll, you know we talk about with the coherence, but also just blind spots. It would be nice if we had more attestation from non-gospel writers about the life and teachings of Jesus. Even Paul doesn't seem to really know a lot about those stories. And so all the stories we get are generally from the, the stories that aren't the later weird Gnostic gospels. So, you know, so they're saying, you know, he's the fulfillment of these um, Hebrew Bible prophecies. And, uh, and sometimes it seems like either the gospel writers themselves or editors were tweaking with things in ways that they thought were helpful. Like when Jesus comes to, um, I forget which of the, the gospel writers says this, but Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey and a foal so that he can fulfill um, the prophecy, but the prophecy was written in Hebrew parallelism. So the two words were supposed to be synonymous. <laughs> so somewhere along the line, either the gospel writer or um, an editor tried to fix it so that it would fit with prophecy and therefore prove the thing. Uh, so there, there are lots of interesting and compelling things about uh, the Bible that show uh, some verification. And there are also some parts that seem problematic. But let's go with the idea that there is uh, that there is some data. 
uh, that is good data. It is not as good, I will say, as the evangelical apologists uh, f- simplistically want you to think it is. And that is, uh, these are the, the reliable four Gospels, and uh, these are the ones that are authorized uh, by all the early people. Uh, th- that's not necessarily true. There are lots of different takes on uh, Jesus. These are written later. As we've already seen, they differ somewhat from Paul um, and Paul's understanding of things. And, uh, and it's not clear at all that the, that the disciples immediately see the resurrection in any, in any case in the same kind of way. Uh, there's, uh, you know, these stories that seem kind of fishy, like the, the Thomas story seems a little fishy when you realize that there seems to be this tradition that Thomas denied, uh, or at least the followers of Thomas or people who claimed to be Gnostic followers of Thomas denied the resurrection. The point is, though, why do we see things develop in the ways that they do? There are many times when an, an honest scholar will look at it and uh, just recognize that these are biased sources. doesn't mean they're wrong, but it doesn't mean that you can use them the way some people want to use them for historical evidence. And uh, it's also important to note that there's a lot of reliance upon um, each of the documents that we have. So they're not, they're not really independent. Uh, folks are using Luke. I'm sorry, f- folks are using Mark. And, uh, and this thing that we th- think is in existence or was in existence that we don't have anymore called Q, a source uh, text of Jesus' sayings. So um, <clears throat> there's... More evidence than for some folks. There's certainly more evidence related to Jesus uh, than there is for the Buddha or for Lao Tzu. Uh, But in those cases, it doesn't really matter. And I would even say, you know, there's probably more um, access to the world of Jesus in some ways than the world of Muhammad. Um, In terms of the early stuff, uh, Muhammad's world is closer to ours in terms of the timeline. But I would say, fine, the data for what we have about Jesus is interesting. And there is, there is information there. There is data there that also includes claims to the resurrection. And as we're not really worried too much here about whether or not Jesus seems to have transcended death and appeared to people. We're talking about now that, that kind of physical uh, resurrection of a flesh and blood body. And whether that's the most important thing, okay? And whether these arguments for that, and I, I think I should mention that these arguments are meant to prove the whole Bible. So like Montgomery, John Mark Montgomery will say this straight out. You can't prove the Bible. And then because the Bible talks about Jesus, then say that Jesus is the son of God and that these things are true. No, the Bible has its own internal and external evidence. And he's right about this. There's evidence that you consider related to this text. And if Jesus rose from the dead, and if what, what the gospels say about him is accurate, then we should take what Jesus says very seriously. He's probably God. If he rose from the dead, uh, we may or may not be also, um, he may or may not be equal with God, but he's pretty special. He's pretty much going to be somebody we should listen to because he's, uh, one of the only folks we know, (laughs) if not the only folk, a person we know that has risen from the dead. So that's kind of the argument from Montgomery. You, you first start with the argument, the historical argument for the resurrection. You move back to it, right? Now, but uh, in any case, so you go to agreement with data. I'll say, let's give it, you know, let's, let's even be generous and say it's like 50, 50, 60, 40 in, in favor of Orthodox Christianity saying that Jesus rose from the dead in some way. Uh, but when we get to coherence, 
Uh, yes, we have coherence, but this is a less apparent thing when you go back to the time before Eusebius, as I'm saying. Before Eusebius, working with the empire kind of standardizes what's in and what's out. Then they start to burn, destroy in some way all these other various voices about Jesus. And these other voices are not in perfect agreement. So if you're thinking about consistency there, that's important. But coherence is really about the consistency and coherence of our own beliefs. So let me just say then that Christianity as a system, if you take it, let's say, from the perspective of Calvinism, is very clean. It fits together very nicely. So if you adopt it, it's a worldview that makes sense. God can predestine some to heaven and some to hell because we all deserve hell. Fine. I don't like it, but it makes sense. So I'll grant a certain kind of coherence. Then you get to the criterion for Eden Barber called scope. And by the way, these are all things that I, I use in the context of my article, Epistemology of the Cross. I use them to defend the historic resurrection and to demonstrate how I would do it. But here I'm kind of unraveling some of that, or at least I'm, I'm showing ways in which I've rethought some of these aspects. And so the third is scope. Scope is the question of whether a certain paradigm is able to incorporate all fields of knowledge and all experiences. If it's just kind of stuck in this magical world or this one uh, specific discipline, but it can't make sense of everything else, then, um, th then maybe you wouldn't believe it. Now, in one sense, I think this is the strongest argument for Christianity or for something like a, a Jesus spiritual belief system. But um, I think, in retrospect, it is, it is where I think it also is the weakest belief in the resurrection. And that is, yes, Christianity does make sense of things. Uh, it, it makes sense of our lives. It helps us to incorporate reasons why other people might not believe um, because they're tied in with money, power, and glory. There are all sorts of things here. But if we're looking at scope and then the way in which we might think about interdisciplinarity in relation to this, um, a lot of times we're failing to, I think, take into account psychology and the psychology of religion. That is, if we see over and over in the social sciences that people tend to deal with cognitive dissonance uh, by resolving it through... Um, ecstatic spiritual experiences, it's not everybody that does this, but it's something that happens, then it's not just possible that people would hallucinate an appearance of Jesus, but it would be expected. Now, um, again, I don't think that hallucinating experience of Jesus means that Jesus wasn't appearing. You know, I think you can go into a, a shamanistic trance and maybe you can contact the, the other world, uh, but that's how you're doing it. Right? You're doing it through this method of um, creating an altered state of, of mind. And, um, and this happens all the time in archaic religions. Well, I guess archaic isn't what we say anymore, but in these in hunter-gatherer shamanistic religions, this sort of thing. Um, and also within psychology, um, it's, it's commonly reported that people do have appearances of people that have passed. And uh, as long as we recognize that... Um, that that most of the encounters that we get are for uh, of Jesus resurrected are individual and they seem kind of odd and spiritual. They're not like normal other than what we see in the gospel account, you know, like where Jesus is eating fish. 
um, again, which could be there for propagandistic purposes, uh, by which I mean they believe that Jesus had a physical body, so they include that to, to double down on that point. But um, in, in any case, uh, when I was growing up and Stacy's growing up, psychology was a bad thing. Stacy wanted to study psychology at the undergraduate level and was told that's like a demonic field. And so, you know, by excluding psychology and excluding the sociology of religion, by excluding classical studies, which can be very helpful for understanding first century manuscripts like the Bible, um, by forgetting about all that and not being able to understand how they interrelate, by not even looking at... Uh, mystery religions in the Greco-Roman world and understanding the parallels by not even entertaining the possibility that Christianity could be something that was influenced by Judaism um, along with mystery religions, Neoplatonism, Stoicism, uh, Hellenism in general, um, and Persian religion, right? By just excluding that, then it's hard for us to really say that we've, we've got a good account. And, um, and again, this does not make the claim false, but it definitely weakens the case for the kind of resurrection that tr traditionally is, is defended because, <clears throat> like I said, it doesn't even take into account modern research into what Paul himself thought or what the, the Hebrew Bible authors seem to have been thinking, which again is this idea that from, you know, ash as we come into ash, to ash we will return again, until later on when other foreign influences seem to creep in. But the most important thing is fecundity. And when I wrote the article uh, or the chapter a long time ago, um, I, I did secretly recognize that this might be the most problematic for two reasons. One, uh, fecundity is the question of whether or not your paradigm produces fruitful results. Is it fertile? That is, if I... Um, assume this paradigm, do I end up uh, getting skunked every time I do a research project? You know, I, I assume that there's going to be uh, quartz underneath this soil. I dig down, there's no quartz. If I do that a thousand times, at some point I have to ask uh, whether my paradigm about where to find quartz is mistaken, right? And it is this point where I think Stacy first started to see the cracks in the upbringing that we had as far as the way we conceived of theology in the church. And that is just unfecundity. She didn't have peace. She didn't have joy. She didn't have freedom. She didn't see people around us uh, exhibiting all the signs of joy, health, and, and wellness. But we would encounter other groups of people that did, even though they were besieged by all sorts of trouble, right? But that they had a certain kind of... Um, stability and uh, peace. And uh, often they were mystical. Often they were just free to think what they think they should think and, and do what they need to do, you know, as, as people. And we didn't see that enough in the Christian world. We saw people um, who were you know, saying that they believed in this resurrection, but terrified of death. Even very important people that we knew in theology and so forth that were you know, apologists that seem to be very afraid of death. And then once we had a mystical kind of sense that we didn't need to be afraid of death, all these folks that were worried about the apologetics for the resurrection, it, it seemed like really kind of sad that, that folks, that's all they had, right? Like their lives are miserable. Their lives are crap. 
There's no way for them to find, you know, fulfillment and joy and abundance in this life. They've got to wait for the next life. But they know that that's like, you know, that's a kind of a wild claim that there's going to be a next life. So they got to go to the resurrection to see if they might have a next life. And so they're very receptive to arguments that the the resurrection uh, occurred. But just go with this. The fecundity of doing research and then coming up confused... um, uh, the idea of fecundity is when you're doing the research, you should say, ah, oh, this makes sense even more, right? If you go on your own and just make four columns and then just write down bullet by bullet what Mark says about um, about the resurrection and then do the same thing with each of them, um, I'm pretty sure you're going to be unsettled. You don't need me or some you know, YouTube video of, of a skeptic or something saying maybe we should rethink the way we understand this resurrection. Um, and this isn't, again, to say that there was not a resurrection of some sort. What I'm saying is the way that we conceive of it as this uh, you know, event that you can depict where there are these guards standing outside, this harmonized version where there's these guards standing outside of Jesus' tomb, the earthquake happens, everybody realizes what's going on. Um, this just doesn't, there's no real evidence for that. And so what, what it seems to be is that Indeed, a lot of people had some kind of profound experience and that uh, this was the experience of a living, not dead Jesus, that it was not just an apparition. It was very, very profoundly real. Paul has this experience himself, and he says that Jesus is, uh, is, a, is a real entity, and he's got some kind of materialness to him, but, uh, but it seems to be a different kind of thing, a different type of body. So, yeah. You could even say with Paul uh, that you believe in the resurrection of the body so long as you believe that there is some kind of ongoing existence as a being having some kind of um, reality after death, but uh, by no means is there a consistent historical, uh, there's not a a consistent story about the history of this. Right? And, and the way that these resurrection accounts happen. So it would be very likely that, uh, that there would be all sorts of people going around in the first century in the Mediterranean that claimed, uh, we know this is true, that they claimed to have seen Jesus appear to them. Um, and it, but yet there is no real strong reason other than in Luke's account of uh, Thomas putting his hand into somebody's side, there's no strong reason to believe that this was to be understood in the way that we get it from the, the Sunday school uh, clip art and that sort of thing. But <clears throat> this does take me to uh, my desire to maybe <laughs> give you what I think is the the best case that something happened, uh, something like a resurrection happened, and that is you start with the Jesus history. You start out with the best we can have is the data and the facts. And the facts are, I think, as I've said, Uh, The Jesus history is you have a crucifixion, you have a death in agony. The reason this seems to be legitimate is that Jesus is said to have cried out uh, the the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It seems like Jesus at some moment um, has this moment where he is not a very good stoic for sure. He's not able to just be cool about it. He doesn't like this. It's not a happy time. He is facing the absurdity of violence and cruelty and uh, the crushing power of Rome. And he feels abandoned. He, you might say, if he's God, here's God not sure he believes in God. Um, 
that seems to have happened because you wouldn't have recorded it if it didn't happen, right? It's an embarrassment that has to be explained away. And historians, uh, I think, rightly tend to say, if if something is hard to believe and people in, include it, it's because they have to include it because everybody knows about it. If I'm doing a biography of of Bill Clinton and I love Bill Clinton and I want to say that he's a great president, um, I still will have to address the Monica Lewinsky thing. I might explain it away, but I cannot ignore it. In the same way, Jesus not being uh, having a great day on the cross uh, seems to be a historically reliable idea. And it's also historically reliable that um, the expectations for him as Messiah were defeated. Uh, people, whether Jesus taught this or not, people thought that he was going to bring about the kingdom in their lifetimes right then in a concrete way. So when these expectations were defeated, there was early belief in the resurrection. Within 20 years, early belief in the resurrection. It seems like when Paul's talking about it in 1 Corinthians, he's also referring to uh, traditions and hymns that had recounted this resurrection. And there is historical uh, certainty, as, as best as we can get, that there was continued belief in the resurrected Jesus despite persecution. So that's very, very strong. And then you have to ask, all right, when I look at this, I can't just look at it like as detached from other aspects of my belief system or other aspects of knowledge. I have to see it within a paradigm. So as a person who affirmed the historic resurrection in the way that it is popularly understood in the Catholic uh, and Protestant traditions, um, this is how I did it. I take that black box, uh, kind of have that in the middle, and we say, all right, as I'm examining this this, this history, we're all kind of standing shoulder to shoulder make, trying to make sense of it. This is like what McGrath talks about with abduction. What's the best explanation of the crucifixion, death and agony, defeated expectations, yet early belief in the resurrection, and then continued belief despite persecution? Why it does this all happen? Um, so uh, the way I would do this with students is I would go through each of the arguments. I would start with all of the uh, stuff that you'll find with the evidence for the reliability of the Gospels. Um, and there are, you know, they are earlier than some texts. They are, um, at, you know, they have multiple manuscripts. We have manuscript traditions that help us to kind of navigate them. So that's that. Um, but I also included other things like uh, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis on Mythopoeia and Hope. The idea that in addition to all this, the gospel of Jesus seems to fulfill all the pagan longings and even we might say the Jungian longings. And, and this is true. I mean, there is something very powerful, as we all know, about the resurrection story and the, and the story of Jesus that comes into all sorts of our uh, like movies like Neo and, and The Matrix, for instance. You get these Christ figures that show up from time to time. So, you know, the argument for uh, like kind of the mythopoetic argument of Tolkien uh, was you know, I thought helpful. And then there's the Hebrew Bible um, and prophecy and foreshadowing of Jesus. Um, I definitely think that piece is far less um, uh, helpful than I used to think, uh, just, you know, based on the, the work I've done to kind of relook at the these stories and the way that they were understood um, in the Hebrew Bible. I mean, just, you know, little things here and there, but uh, definitely not as uh, helpful as I used to think. And then there's, of course, uh, I'll grant to the Plantingas of the world immediate perception. Uh, Plantinga would say, 
when you go out into the mountains, you don't say, these are mountains, they're amazing, and only amazing things can come from an amazing designer, therefore there must be a god that is the designer. Plantinga says, no, some of these beliefs are properly basic. God did this, God made this, God loves me, God's angry at me. These are just immediate perceptions that do not depend on inference, not some kind of logical move from one fact to another. They're just our, our basic facts that we take for granted. I think there is something to that in the sense that if, you know, if we have like a sense of divinity as human beings, if, if most of us do, if we have this, this hunch, uh, it's possible that this is just something that develops in us um, through evolutionary psychology, which you definitely have to take seriously to at least have as part of the conversation. But, you know, it's a piece of evidence. And this is what's important. You don't need, going back to Swinburne, you don't need every one of these things to be certain. It's just these little hints, these little rumors and whispers. Um, you could go then, or I, I used to, um, go to the God-shaped vacuum uh, in our hearts, something that Augustine talks about. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you, speaking to God. And so this idea that uh, you know C.S. Lewis picks up on fish, um, don't know what water is, but they know when they need it, you know, when they're flopping around um, on land. And so we're flopping around. We need God. We don't realize what, what, what God is or where we can find him. But the fact that we have this spiritual desire is at least a rumor or a whisper or a possibility that there should be some fulfillment to that desire. And then, of course, as uh, Swinburne m- mentions, the theistic arguments. Um, which I think are uh, not as powerful as uh, folks used to hope, but certainly I think the idea that there's mystery and beauty and, and, and design, uh, it's something. Uh, I think the problem is, as, uh, as Father John Misty uh, sings about in his uh, album Divine Comedy, which caused a crisis of faith in one of my students, um, he kind of looks at design and says, yeah, well, our heads are way too big for our mother, way too big for our mother's hips. That is, evolution has uh, brought us to a place where, unlike other animals that are born with their brains fully formed, uh, human babies are like not fully formed because their heads are so big. For us to be this smart, we got to have these big heads, but our big heads hurt um, the, the mom when, uh, when they're coming out in a way that other mammals might not have to deal with. That doesn't seem like a very good design. Of course, you could look to the fall of Eve and say, well, she, she brought it on herself by eating this fruit. Um, but, um, but in any case, uh, there's something to it, right? I mean, I think all of us have at least pondered, you know, these questions of, you know, like why there is something rather than nothing. So, um, the, you know, if we're not atheists, and we're not atheists, um, as we've, as we've talked about before, like the only real question isn't whether there is a God, but is, does God know that God exists? And, uh, I guess is God nice, <laughs> you know, and is God worthy of being worshiped or should we, uh, band together and oppose this, <laughs> this, uh, overlord, which I do not think is the case. It's just like, to me, that's the only real, um, you know, it's an interesting question, but if God exists, that certainly does as Swinburne shows, uh, make sense of the Christian history. So there is a way for somebody to bring all this together and say the, the, the paradigm with which I'm working does make sense of the Jesus history. And the Jesus history is the best possible explanation of all these things we know. And, uh, and I think there's something to that. 
right? So like if you go through all of this, if it, that's great. But I, I can only say that if you're going to look for the specific, simplistic, scientific questions, everything starts to fizzle. If you're looking to the historical questions, everything starts to fizzle. The paradigm, at least as, let's say, Montgomery uses it, where you have an inerrant Bible because Jesus rose from the dead and Jesus says the Bible's true, so therefore it should be inerrant. Uh, first of all, I, Jesus never uses the word inerrancy, so that's just sloppy for a, for a lawyer. But on the other hand, um, it's, uh, it's kind of questionable how you can get that from saying that Scripture testifies of Jesus and Scripture is true, because there are a lot of Christians over the years, including, uh, you know, St. Augustine, who thought that the Bible was true, but to think of it in terms of literalness uh, it would have been foreign to them, right? But if you have this a very literal understanding of the resurrection of Jesus, and then you go searching for things, um, maybe it doesn't work in the same way that it works with science, but you would expect that everything we find is going to continue to strengthen rather than weaken our case. And I think that that is not what happened. So originally we thought that, you know, Josephus was an extra biblical source that, you know, vindicated the Bible, but it's pretty clear that Christians later edited him to be a, an extra witness. And the, relatively recent discovery of texts like the Nag Hammadi library cannot be underestimated. They are obviously later, but the idea that there were very powerful forces that were able to and were determined to wipe out all contrary testimonies to who Jesus was and what he thought makes the whole thing a lot more opaque because Clearly something's going on here. Clearly there are different traditions that we should consider as spiritual traditions that will be helpful and traditions that we might want to adopt ourselves. But to assume that this was all one very clean uh, encounter with uh, just very slight variations amongst the reported witnesses is uh, just increasingly difficult to hold. The more we the more we study this, the more we realize how much influence empire had on the, the formation of the canon. Um, yes, it's true that these texts were being used, but they were being used by a certain set of liturgies, a certain set of churches, and uh, we don't know a lot about what other groups were doing because most of their stuff gets crushed, and nobody had any reason to, to revive it if they found, uh, let's say, manuscripts in the Middle Ages. They might have used it, you know, uh, to compost or uh, <laughs> start a fire. Uh, and they certainly might have immediately burned them as, as heretical, especially when you get stuff like the Gospel of Thomas, uh, you know, where Jesus is telling Thomas something that even the other apostles would stone him for. I mean, at least that's in the narrative. So, well, if you're living in that world, you don't have a free uh, range of options at your disposal. All you have is evidence that the empire let us have. And the evidence that the empire let us have um, does not um, tend to be as emphatic about the individual liberation, the individual as the, uh, as the presence of the presence, right? And, um, and yet, Stacy and I are almost done. We had to, you know, we've always had to keep revising it as our own views have changed, but we're 
basically done now with what we were calling Protect Your Noggin with Jesus. We'll announce the new title soon. But it's 12 teachings from Jesus to help us evade religious wolves and to help us like escape people who come at us in his name saying we got to go to their their sect, you know, or their club, or else we're going to go to hell. Um, so we've got some stuff there. We think there's enough in the, the Gospels as we have them to, you know, subvert everything that is holding us back uh, in the name of Jesus. But we don't get to use texts that we don't have. We don't get to use uh, testimonies, witnesses that we don't have. And some of them do seem to be um, more mystical, more empowering, more liberating, and uh, more namaste. You know, the divine light in me notices and winks at and high fives the divine light in you. So um, here's the deal. Whatever happens... We're very open. I'm certainly very open to the idea that the appearance of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, uh, was a vindication of the message, though I think it's important theologically for us all to say it's not the message itself. It is um, part of the joy that we can continue to celebrate this message for ourselves and for people who have died and people that are yet to come. Uh, that, that's an interesting and beautiful idea that we can hold, but um, I think we, we do a disservice to ourselves and to the world and, and to the cause of justice when we make it all about a, um, a hope in the afterlife and complacency about a shitty reality in this, all right? Now, I've been doing this for a while, and I, I did not give you the—I just don't even have it in me anymore to, to give you the full uh, spiel that I would have given. You can go find them online pretty easily. I used to do—in high school, I used to walk around with a, a leather hat, a guitar, a coffee mug that I would fill up in the teacher's lounge, and I wouldn't wear shoes. And instead of going to class, i just wander around, find people, and uh, ask them if I could have 15 minutes to prove to them that the resurrection was true. I was really— versed in it. I was really proud of myself. People said, that sounds good. I'd say, uh, do you want to come to church? They'd say no. And the reason um, was because they didn't want to join a club of, of evildoers and bigots and anti-Semites and racists and collaborators with capitalism and homophobes and anti-environmentalists. I'm not saying that Christians are all that. I'm simply saying that people weren't really worried about the questions and the answers I was providing, they were, ans- they were asking for a philosophy of life, a spirituality in a better way that was sublime. And they did not uh, detect in at least evangelicalism in America, at least the unchurched folks that I ran into, uh, to share these historical arguments for the resurrection. They didn't care about the resurrection. They wanted to know if there was a way to life and life that was abundant. They wanted to know if there was a world of transformation, not just, <clears throat> not just the kind of spackling over uh, human wickedness and, and the hiding of sexual abuse in the church. And, you know, how many times was I talking to somebody who had been abused in a church setting and wasn't going to go to church, but wasn't also going to tell me why they weren't? You know, they might believe the arguments, but they're not going to go into a church because th- that's too dangerous. What, we, what I didn't know in high school was that the synoptics aren't really independent sources, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They derive from a common textual tradition or two, so that's one. They're biased. Their best dating is, like I said, 65 to 90. Um, 
Paul makes a reference to the resurrection 20 years after Jesus, but he wasn't a close eyewitness. He may have had a real experience. That helps us understand what they were thinking of when this experience is described. Um, but as far as historical evidence, it's a lot weaker than I thought. Um, but that's okay. Because whether or not these details are real only matters if all you care about is the preservation of your own um, tradition as right and everybody else is wrong. But if you want to do a journey towards Jesus the way Buddhists do a journey towards their teacher, Buddha, the Buddha, we can do this by not only examining what we have about the historical person, but also about the trajectories that flowed from that person. And, and we can evaluate those on whether or not they were helpful or harmful to the world, whether they were um, potent or impotent to heal, and whether or not they uh, ring true. Now, the point is, Stacy and I might no longer be Orthodox or Catholics as things turn out in the, in the sense that people demand, but those people trace their lineage back to empire. And uh, we're not that interested in that. In fact, that makes it not false for us, but definitely suspect. The, if you examine the life of Constantine himself, he still has iconography of, of paganism. And yet he wants, it seems, to use Christianity as a way to control people. And that's how we've experienced Christendom. That's how we experienced American right-wing conservatism. And the only way we found out of that, ironically, was the way of Jesus. And we believe that whatever happened, Jesus was special. And he was special enough um, that his movement could not die, even when he himself might have despaired over it. They can't kill Jesus. And um, they can't kill his movement ultimately the revolution cannot be suppressed through the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the presence. Friends, this is you, all right? Now, I am not saying this so that I can get around the other question, all right? But I am saying that to me is the point. That is the point biblically, it's the point to the early church that Christianity is about little Christs, little people that are embodying this Christ principle. They are the kingdom of priests. The temple is destroyed. It's built back up. It's either, and your options then historically are either that Jesus is a failure, his, his mission was a disaster, and there was nowhere to go from there, and that people invented a way to deal with it, okay, and we call that Christianity, or there is a power, there is a spiritual power behind it, which I think might be true. I hope it to be true, and, uh, and, uh, there is historical evidence for it to be true. That is that there is a spiritual power that can bring down Rome itself. Nobody could do it. The, like the Welsh, you know, kind of get put up a little fight there, the Picts, you know, but it was like, it's hard to, to, to not get absorbed into the empire. But Christianity um, in the early church, Jesus is able to bring about a, a message that subverts the empire. Unfortunately, Within a few centuries, the, the last laugh, at least up until recently, has been that the empire co-opts, has a hostile takeover of the church in the spirit of Molech, not of Christ. The Antichrist wins pretty early on and does so in a very, uh, and I mean Antichrist is like a spirit, um, 
But if you want to destroy the subversive and radical message of Christianity, you can get people to say, sure, you can have all of that, but not in this life. And we're the ones who tell you what Christianity is about because we appoint the bishops and we convene the synods and we convene the, uh, the, the, the councils. I know that a lot of things I'm saying are things that I've heard on YouTube and stuff in the past or read in books. And I was like, just, that's stupid. That's, that pissed me off. I don't know any other way to see it. Like some of this stuff is so obvious once you just can just kind of set aside some of the other baggage that you've got to bring with it. And so let me conclude with this. Anne Lamott. Oh my gosh. I used to, I always liked Anne Lamott's writing and I liked her vibe. Um, it's probably best for white ladies not to wear dreadlocks unless you're actually Rasta. You know what I'm saying? Like you've got to really get, you got to get into, you got to do it for real. And even then, uh, but forgiving her for, for a white woman, um, dreadlocks. She, she, she said this at Easter one time and it just, I said, this was dumb. Cause I'd like, I'd rather just be an atheist than deal with this. But she said, this is the Easter message that awakening is possible to the goodness of God, the sacredness of human life, the sisterhood and brotherhood of all. Uh, that sounds like peace though to me, friends. This Easter message, that awakening, repentance is possible, that we, that another world is possible, that there might be something transcendent. Friends, I don't know. Those of you who are more secular and you're like, hey, thanks, we've been digging your stuff, but now like, look, you're, you're backsliding into the Jesus. No, no, no. Uh, I got a hunch that everything's okay. I used to, you know, in the old podcast, I said, uh, everything's going to be okay. Um, right now, that doesn't feel good at all. Like, given the grief that our family's experienced and just holy, this world is out of control. It was so hot. Oh, climate degradation, hostility, mistreatment of immigrants, healthcare system that's broken, all sorts of reasons to despair. When I say everything's going to be okay, I think the, the message that I'm feeling now is everything's, everything's fine. Everything's okay. And everything's a catastrophe. And this is paradox. Um, there is a spiritual beauty that absorbs everything else. I still believe this. It's not just like I still believe it because I'm like holding on by my fingertips at the end. Um, I've seen it and I can't prove it to you and I'm not trying to prove it to you because I don't think that's really the best way to do it. You need to taste and see that the Lord is good. And that goodness, friends, is peace upon peace. He's risen. He's risen indeed. But maybe in a way we didn't expect and maybe we can't fully figure it out. And maybe that mystery is part of the fun and the growth. Anyway, friends, take care. Rock steady. Oh, thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? 
Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said that wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.